So I'm very, very excited because um, this is the second episode. I'm very, very excited about um, our guest today. Um, he is an associate professor of curriculum at Teachers College Columbia in, um, in New York City. So we're very, very excited. Um, and I will just let the man introduce him himself. So Danny, why don't you go ahead and say hi. Hi, I'm Danny Friedrich. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting on my bed on quarantine. Uh, uh, but yes, in New York City. And happy to talk to you all. <laughs> and I am, in, I am coming to you from a basement in Minnesota. So that's very good social distancing. We're doing great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to pass my virus to you or vice versa. <laughs> Except for a computer virus. Right, right except for if it's a computer virus. Um, so, again, man, thank you so much for, for coming and hanging out. Um, in addition to being um, one, of the, one of the best scholars that, that I know, one of the like, most critical and in-depth thinkers that I know, you're also a big comics guy. And actually, we got introduced by a comics first. A lot of times in, this, in these places... Um, of academia, like you'll meet at a conference and it'll be meeting about the research work first and then a personal interest. And what I think we met kind of the inverse we, <laughs> through, yeah. mutual, through a mutual friend. Um, so um, we'll, we'll, we'll start how I guess we're normally starting, um, it, which is, can you tell us just a little bit about your origin story, right? How did you come into... How, how did, what's your story with comics and, and you? Yeah. So as you will hear from this, I have a slight, almost imperceptible accent. Oh, <laughs> I go can tell. So uh, I'm originally from Argentina, from Buenos Aires. And I, I it's funny because I just, um, an article in Spanish is going to about to come out. It's an, a pop autobiography of myself that I wrote. Sort of. Oh, wow in which I talk about how there's not a time that I remember of my life not being attracted by comics and by superheroes. And this has to do in part with the scarcity. Like when I grew up, it was really hard to get a hold of comics. So of course you could get reruns of Super Friends and, and those kind of things dubbed into Spanish. Um, but it was really hard to get actual comics. So there were two ways in which you can get them. One were the, the mostly Mexican uh, translations that were available on some flea markets and some informal spaces. And only also, the only formal space, this is really, I don't know why, mm -hmm. uh, it was at the airport. At the airport, <laughs> there was a place where you could get Mexican comics. It was something with a duty-free area and all that, right? Right. And, and then the other part was when people traveled and they could bring you some. So it was extremely scarce for me to find comics. But every time I got one, I would, I, I would devour it. I, I, it would shred to pieces uh, so many times. And and funny fact about myself is that I learned English through comics. So what? Really? My, I didn't... Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I had English classes in school, but they were not very good. But the way in which I got sort of the more nuances of the, of the language uh, and the sort of more conversational... And, and, and different ways of talking was through comics. My dad traveled at least twice a year to the U.S. For, for work, and I would always ask him to bring me comics. 
And so I would not, I, I had to decode English through the, the play between images and, and words and, and sort of knowing what was going on, so therefore I could figure it out, right? And so then in the 90s, so I grew, I, I, I was born in the late 70s, in the early 90s, Argentina starts publishing its own translations of American comics. And so I, I, I would buy whatever I could. And also comic stores, uh, because of the economic situation in Argentina, comic stores start selling American comics at a reasonable price for us. And, and so I started um, spending all my allowance there. And that, that's where it really picked up. But that, by, that, by that time, I was already into it. But that was in my teenage years. But as a kid, it was just whatever I could get. And it was always like, of course, part two of five, right? You, <laughs> because it was random things. I had to make up in my mind how the story started, how the story would end, what was in the middle. So, but, yeah. it, but I don't know. I, I feel, um, every time I find in, in, in comic stores, like this old issues that I had access to, I had this like strong attachment to how it would make up worlds in my mind about what was happening at a time, right? right. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of how I got into it. And, and I would always be really uh, fascinated by the worlds of this, this thing. Okay? I was always more of a DC person growing up. Um, although whenever I could get my, ha- my hands on some Marvel, I would get that too. But in general, I was more, more into DC. Um, and yeah, that's how, like, basically how I got into it. So I, I, it's, I don't, I cannot pinpoint that moment right. because it was always part of, part of me. Right. And as, well, I've got a, we got a whole bunch of questions, but um, when you look at that, and I'm the same way, like comics are a part of my whole existence. Um, uh, the, the next question I was going to ask is, um, why did you bring comics into your your research i know we've presented together at um one of the largest international education research conferences right that's as like as top as it gets so um and we're not the only ones so i'm just curious why you brought that into your your research um is that and is that a recent thing or i i resisted bringing comics into research for a long time just because I did not want to spoil them in a way. Like I felt like if I over-intellectualize them, I would miss the, when I read comics, which I read every week, I still read a lot of comics. I go into a different space, right? That feels um, more like, it's separate from the intellectual life or it used to be in some ways. Doesn't mean I don't think deeply about comics. Doesn't mean I don't do those things. But I felt like having to write about them would, the same way that when you assign a book in class, sometimes you ruin the book for kids that like it to begin with, right? right. If you don't do it right. right. You can still preserve love. You can do a lot of things. But in general, my experience is that when, when things enter school or enter, enter your work, they, they turn into something different. But then in all good stories, is a tragedy, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, in, um, in 2015, my dad passed away mm. after a, a long struggle with cancer. And I was really um, down, right? I, I had a very close relationship with him. And for a while, I could not connect to work. Mm. I could not sit down and write. I could yeah. not really care about certain things. Yeah. And the way to reconnect with work was to reconnect through pleasure. And I said, I have mm-hmm. to sort of let this write all things that are fun and that are loving for me and that, that brings mm-hmm. me joy. 
And mm. so I was writing all ed policy and all those things that are really important, but I, I could not connect joy with that. Mm. So I started, I, I put together this book that was about this Latin American TV show that everyone in Latin America knows called El Chavo del Ocho. Mm. And I, I quoted this volume with people I love, right? Not people that are that necessarily, I mean, they, they're all amazing scholars, but I'm not going to contact them because right. they were at the top of the game, but because I love them. Wow. And, and, and so we worked on this book. I, I quoted it with a doctoral student, Erika Colmenares, and, and just entering that space made me see that I could enter that without spoiling it. Writing that book showed me that I could wow. write about comics and TV and pop culture and artifacts that I have a deep affective connection to. A, without losing a critical connection. I mean, I can love something mm -hmm. and be deeply critical about it. Yep. And I can love something, intellectualize it, and still enjoy it. Um, and so through that entrance that happened through that moment in time in my life, I started writing more and more about comics. I started teaching courses on pop, pop culture and, and really having this other kind of engagement with it. It's like you can love something, be critical about it, and still enjoy it. Right. right? To be an intellectual, like you said at the beginning, you don't have to be someone that only is engaged by things that are perfect, that are critical, mm -hmm. that are deep. Mm -hmm. You can read a Superman comic, love it, mm -hmm. understand its imperial entanglements, its colonial entanglements, yeah. and still enjoy it. All of those things can happen at the same time. And you're not a worse person for doing it. You're not a dumber person for doing it. You're not a simpler person for doing it. And you're not less of an academic for doing it. And so realizing that opened this door that now I, I, I have several pieces and, and sort of ways of engaging with pop culture. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's basically how I got into it. Um, wow. Thank you so much, first of all, for sharing, for sharing that, that story. Um, that, that's a, it's a powerful connection. Um, and for just laying it, just really laying it bare. Right. Um, and people can go on to um, Google Scholar and, and, and check that stuff out. We'll throw a link up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so and I get... to share PDFs of everything, including the book. The, those oh, wow. books are ridiculously expensive. They're not made for public consumption. <laughs> They're just made for uh, libraries. Right, uh, right. So, so we'll, make, we'll make sure people can, can, get, uh, can get access to that. I know we're both very committed to making sure that knowledge and um, and those kinds of artifacts are, are readily available. Um, sorry if you can hear my dog in the background. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of flash forward and talk about, um, you've got this amazing piece because you're an education researcher, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't think I am. Mm -hmm. um, and you are um, connecting, if folks are familiar with the character of Robin, um, a lot of folks might think of the 1966, like Burt Ward, um, or, or maybe even just the Dick Grayson character, um, but, but picking up on that thread of criticality think, uh, and that, that, that thread of, of bringing the, the, the academic or the, the almost epistemological into the, into the superhero world, uh, I guess. Um, You've got this piece uh, on Robin coming out. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the, that piece and, and how you were thinking about um, education, childhood, and Robin. Yeah. So um, 
I saw a few months ago a call for papers for the new educator, a special issue that um, Debbie Sonu and Henny Yoon were co-editing on images of childhood. And I had this idea of the psychic. Sorry, now I have the siren going on behind me. <laughs> that's, that's New York, man. Um, so how... Um, the, the, so you can follow a visual visual history of mm -hmm. comics to understand different understandings of childhood and mentorship and pedagogy. So I threw this idea to two doctoral students that I'm working with, Jordan Corson and Jen Dauphine, and I said to them, look, I have this idea. I don't have the time at this point to write the main thing. So I'll throw this idea to you. If you like it, let's run with it. I'm going to be the third author. So you write the core of it and I, I contribute and then we have critical feedback. But just to be clear, Jordan is the first author. Okay. And, is the second, and I'm the third one. And, and so the idea was, and, and because Jordan is reading to comics, Jen was not so much, but Jen is reading to childhood. So we, we combine our areas of expertise. That's a Justice League. That's an educational Justice League. <laughs> Everybody brings their strength to the team. That, that, exactly. And so what I said is, like you said, like most people have this idea of Robin as this innocent child, holy childhood Batman is called, is the article called. <laughs> and so, um, but, but actually Robin has evolved through time and different characters have taken up the mantle of Robin. So I said, why don't we tie up how each character took up the mantle and how they were written into what was happening at the time in terms of notions of childhood, but also because it's a teacher education journal, what is it that, what is the notion of education that is implied in that notion of childhood? So if Robin is an innocent child when he's first introduced in 1940 and Batman is the one to protect him and to shield him from, from darkness and to, and to have this very patronizing, Robin is always in need of help. Robin is always being rescued. Robin is always learning and never graduating, right? Yeah. And what does it say about childhood then? And then in the 80s, you have Jason Todd taking on the mantle of Robin as a kid that is the definition of the at-risk child. So he's right. caught Batman stealing the Batmobile's wheel. And <laughs> so, the first time we see him is, is he is committing a crime. Right. Stealing and a husband from the Batmobile. the option of sending him to jail or I'm going to save him, mm. right? And so he's this troubled child. And at the same time, that the same year that that Robin is introduced, a nation at risk is written. And so we think really? of how, how like comics are reflective of and producing of social notions of childhood, right? And in the 90s, you have a third character taking up the role of Robin, Tim, Tim Drake, who is my Robin. That's the Robin I grew up with. That's the Robin I love. And he's this self-sufficient genius child who is a Batman's pair. So he's not the sidekick. He is really someone that Batman can only so guide so much but also, uh, he's the one that doesn't think of himself as taking on the, the, next of, uh, the, the role of, Robin, of Batman next. Right. He's just doing this to help Batman. Right. Because Batman is the one that's in trouble for not having a Robin. So, like, what is a different pedagogical role that is happening there, right? right. And then, uh, just to be clear, there are other Robins that have taken this role for very short periods, but we're taking the four main. And the last one is Damian Wayne, who is Batman's biological son. Batman fails at that, 
And so a former Robin, so someone from the community, has to come in and take that on. Dick Grayson becomes Batman, and that's when Damon Wayne becomes Batman. Just, just real so, quick, you cut real quick. You cut out, um, or my internet cut out. Can you go? Can you can you repeat what you said about you, Damian Wayne? We got to he's bi- Batman's biological son. And there was a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. So he's his biological son. He had, he he received some of Bruce Wayne's same training. So he has read the same literature. He had the same combat training. So he's an equal to Batman in skills, but he has no soul. He doesn't have a moral guidance. He, he was trained by assassins, so he could very easily become a villain. And so in that sense, it's not training him to get, give him knowledge, but to guide him. But Batman fails. Batman cannot do that. He cannot connect to his son in that way. So, mm-hmm. and former Robin, that is a teacher from the community, comes back and becomes Batman for that Robin to have a guidance. And that's, and so, and that's Dick Grayson, right? That's Dick Grayson, exactly. As a grown person who just sees that if he doesn't do something, this Robin will get lost. And so we explore how, again, each one of these Robins corresponds to a different notion of childhood with what also is going on at the time in society to think of what is the notion of pedagogy. And, and finally, we finish with this, this title that only lasted for, for, for 12 years, called We Are Robin, in which Robin is not, not a person, but it's a movement. Yeah does not need a Batman, but it's youth taking it upon themselves to save themselves. And so where are the, the, the openings that that allows us to think in terms of education? What happens when youth tells we are Robin? We don't need a Batman, we are Robin. Oh, that's, so, that's so incredible. And, and I'm thinking a lot about, you know, I'm going back to thinking about graduation, right? And particularly with Dick Grayson, um, how he literally extricates himself right he doesn't he graduates and he becomes you know he's with the teen titans for a while as robin but then he eventually sort of distances himself he he takes on a completely new identity as nightwing which is uh to be to be super clear one of my favorite i'm more of a marvel guy nightwing is my my dc guy it's like without with with a number one with the bullet but he 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 takes it upon himself to graduate. He's not, the institution doesn't say, all right, now you can, now you're no longer a sidekick. He chooses for himself to take on his, his own agency. So that's, that's really, really, uh, that, that's really cool. Um, yeah, and when he does that, he's very quickly aware that he can never be fully separate from Batman, right? That's he, right. He's right. his own character, but he never leaves the teacher behind. That's right. And the other part of that is that, the few times where DC experimented with having Batman have no Robin, yeah, it's impossible. Yep. The same way we can't have teachers without students. Yep. Um, Batman without Robin is has no purpose. And it's uh, it's really interesting because they talk about, um, you know, as comic heads talk about the Bat family, right? The yeah, all of those characters, and that that's one of those things that you know, um, all of the Batgirl, right? Um, Stephanie Brown, Batwoman, all of those folks, Batman doesn't work without, as you said, without, I think it's very interesting, those notions of family and then the notions of how does, how does, how do notions of childhood factor into the, yeah. our thinking about that. Um, and also notions of whiteness, right? Not, so oh, you have all the Robins being white, 
until the We Are Robin movement. That's right. Which is a much more diverse movement. And right. so it's interesting to think of also how whiteness plays into, into comics, into the, the fact that Jason Todd was a white kid stealing the Batmobile yep. wheel. That speaks much more to who the, the, the publisher thinks the audience is mm-hmm. and who actually be portrayed at that time by reports like such as A Nation at Risk as someone that would steal yep. a wheel, right? Right. And who doesn't go, who, who doesn't go to jail is not um, incarcerated right and um and i think it's really interesting if you look at the batman um relatively recently there was um there's bat wing right um lucius fox's uh son and even before that um i'm gonna blank on the name but um in batman incorporated which is a great title by uh, grant morrison um there was a bat wing um from africa but they they were not brought in they never assumed the mantle of robin Mm -hmm. right so they were that sidekick as it were, the the moral compass for Batman, if if you want to put it that way, I guess. Um, but they were not. It wasn't Robin, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's a very powerful. I think it's a very powerful thing to think about too. I was going to ask you why why you thought comics were important, but I think if, I I think we've really put the put the nail on the on the head there. Um, and what I would say is that for me, it's not that comics themselves are that important. I mean, they are no, no. for me. But what's important is to connect our work to pleasure and to joy right. and to um, affective connections. And also the, what I'm teaching in my pop culture classes has to do with, I'm, I'm really amazed by the fact that I did a survey of teacher education programs and I haven't found a single teacher education programs in which there is a pop culture class that is mandatory. And how can we understand our students? How can we understand the kids we, we work with if we don't understand the ways in which they are shaped by culture and they shape culture themselves, right? Like, it, it seems like we think that by learning psychology, by learning, like, learning sciences, we get to know our kids. We don't. But if we knew the video games they play, if we knew the, the music they listen to, the way they dress, like, that gets us much closer to learning who our kids are in some ways. And in some ways, right? And also how they react to those, that culture. Right? right, and so the same comics. It's it's one way to get at that, right? Which is something that's really interesting. Um, I think a lot of times, especially in in education and and in teaching and schooling and in contemporary society, and I don't want to just say even in just the United States, um, there is it's so technical, it's so technocratic almost that it it, it there is no joy, right? Yeah. There is no. Um, there is no celebration of life. There is no pleasure in learning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of, as you said, it's Batman with no soul. Yeah. Right. It's man, you're really good at the technical aspects. Boy, you're an Olympic gymnast when it comes to this. But we've 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 taken the mm-hmm. humanity out of the humanities in some way, and um, and I think it's really cool that you've that that what you said this notion of how do we un, how, how do we understand our students not because it's a way to teach them better but it's a way to understand them as as humans and that uh, as human beings and that is a path toward uh democracy towards liberation towards right. um, and it's not right? i mean I, the one thing I, I don't like is when pop culture enters the classroom is as a way to engage students in learning the standards that were preset, right? So, exactly. like, 
let's use comics to teach them math. And it's like, no, 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 no. Because that's what I was saying. Like, that, that's when you kill the joy and the pleasure, right? Um, I'm not saying let's not teach them math. Of course we need to teach right, them right. <laughs> But I'm saying, like, let's, as future teachers and as current teachers, let's learn about what is the pop culture of the moment. Let's examine the pop culture that shaped us, that shaped yes. our own yes. being. And, and see how now it's different or similar and all that in order to get closer to like how kids live their lives. Right. Right. To, in, I, I saw something interesting today. We talked a lot about this social distancing, right? Um, but somebody said, and I have to find the, the quote, so I'm paraphrasing. I apologize um, for not having this on me, but they said, you know, teachers have been socially and culturally distancing themselves from their students for generations. Yeah. Right. Um, it's just via, you know, digital culture. Now we're physically separated, but culturally we've been distant for, for forever. And so this is, I think, a really important way to, to connect um, with, with students. Um, and, um, and I appreciate, I appreciate uh, all those things that you've just said. Um, what are you reading right now? We're going to, we're going to end with a, we'll end with a reading list so that people, you know, they're, 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 Everybody has their Comixology. Shouts out to Comixology if you want to sponsor us. That'd be fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but um, they're going to be doing their digital reading. What are you reading right now? Um, let me think. Well, I have like, sort of I have the staples that I read even when they're bad. I hate myself because I keep reading them because they're, even if they're bad, but I have to read them. Like, you I love always what you love. The heart wants what the heart wants, man. Right. <laughs> Flash and Justice League. Uh, I'm liking what Bendis is doing with Superman right now. Uh, I think it's pretty good. Um, as for outstanding comics, uh, I'm really, I, I love Tom King. So what he, the first issue of Strange Adventures. Strange just Adventures? And that so looked good. really good. I, of course, it's the first issue. So we'll see how it goes by In King We Trust. Yes. Um, and Mitch's work, Mitch Gerard's work is. It's amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and then what else? Uh, I don't know. I have to think about it. You caught me off guard. No, sorry. Um, yeah. And by the way, if you're, if you've read, um, if you like Tom King, check out vision, it's a, the new Wanda vision show is coming, is coming out on, you know, digital platform. I'm not gonna yeah. I wrote a paper on the vision that I really liked too. Uh, it was published in a Brazilian journal. Really? Yes. You know, I love you're that. Giving people all kinds of homework, man. This is great. Um, but but good, but in a good way, right? But, um, his notion, like understanding what it is to be human in that is is remarkable. Yeah. Um, um, I, I also like the it's 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 trashy in a way. But I really like Deceased. It's the, the zombie that Tom Taylor is doing. I love Tom. First of all, I love Tom Taylor. I love yeah. Deceased. It's, it, there's nothing wrong with, with, a good, um, with a good apocalyptic zombie. Totally. Especially um, now, it feels like. Right. I'm like, it's maybe a little too close to home. Um, yeah. so, but oh, and, and one more is Far Sector. Far Sector, I'm loving. Oh my gosh. Okay, so let's talk about this for half a second, just yeah. uh, as we're wrapping up. How good is Far Sector? N.K. Jemison, one of the yeah. one of the premier sci-fi writers of our time, um, has this Green Lantern comic. It's so good, right? Yeah, it's the art is fantastic, the story is great. And what I was talking about with a friend the other day is how 
I mean, it's, it's obvious, but it's not so obvious. It's like when I grew up, uh, I had a Green Lantern to read. I had a Flash to read. I had, there was a line of things to read and, and that was was available, right? Yep. And I have an eight-year-old son that now can read Green Lantern Legacy, which is a, a short graphic novel for middle grades right. uh, about a, a Vietnamese-American Green Lantern with a whole like, set of different mythologies and, and amazing art. And then First Sector by King Jemison, which is a different lantern for a different taste. And, and, and you have all this, I mean, what he has access to, I wish I had access when I was growing up, right? I mean, it's, it's right. amazing. Well, I think what's so interesting, and Legacy is, is so good. Check that, check that out as well. Um, and I just, read, um, um, I just read Superman Smashes the Clan which you've got to check out. Um, okay, will do. Uh, Gene, um, Gene Young, from, uh, who did American Born Chinese, adapted um, a 1930s Superman radio serial where it's exactly what you think it is. It's Superman smashes the Klan, but it's actually about um, Japanese um, immig- immigrants and identity formation. It is thoroughly good. But um, Legacy is so good. Um, and as is as is Far Sector, and going back to what we were talking about earlier about our kids and, and whether they're our, our own children or whether they're in our classroom, right, are still going about this notion, uh, of this process, I should say, of identity formation, of, of learning who they are, learning to read the word and the world through these particular uh, artifacts, right, that are thoroughly fun, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? I'm excited to see what different kinds of fandom this new wave oh, of elicits because I feel like our so generation good. grew up with a very toxic notion of fandom, which is my my character, my child. I own this, and yep. therefore, when you change it, you're changing, you're challenging me. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have to begin with a multiplicity of Green Lanterns, say, or Flashes, or whatever, then that has the potential to to really have this kid grow up into different kinds of fans that are much more about the love for the multiple than the protection of the of the soul thing. Right, and we saw that we saw that now. It seems relatively recent, but it's not. We saw that with Miles Morales, right? We yeah. saw. That's not real Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Man's pretend, one. Sorry, spoiler. Spoiler to everyone. Um, That's Tom Holland, not really Spider-Man. But but there was that visceral reaction, right, to Miles Morales, the how dare you, you can't do this because it was so deeply ingrained in particular identities, whiteness Mm -hmm. and and toxic masculinity in a lot of ways. But we have now, I'll give you a little story. I have a six-year-old. Um, and he goes, dad, I love Spider-Man. And I was like, yeah, I love Spider-Man too. Yeah. Miles Morales is the best. And it just was like, wow. Right. Exactly what you're saying. His, yeah. his, his factory default was miles, mm-hmm. right. Cause he loves spy into Spider-Verse, right. And all, and all of that, right. that multiplicity, that hybrid, that, that hybridized notion of identity, right. Of being multiple, multiple realities are possible. Multiple. Right. Uh, perspectives are are not are not to be feared right so i mean just spot on and now i gotta go read i gotta go read some comics um so man i really really appreciate it i know that we we have been chopping it up for a while um and i really appreciate your time um we will um we will throw up some links to um 
some some articles. And um, again, man, I really, really appreciate your time. Sure, it was great. Thank you for having me. You got it, buddy. Thank you.